Hello everybody, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I suppose I owe you guys an explanation. And you're asking, or want to ask me, I suppose, where is the Enlightenment? Ben, you promised me a Season 2 was going to be on the Enlightenment. Well, I mean, yeah, okay. The longer I researched the Enlightenment, the more I got into it, the more there were other questions that I wanted to answer. And also, I guess the longer I realized, or the more I realized, I should say, the I guess the Enlightenment, it's not that it doesn't matter, it's that there's more urgent things that a podcaster podcasting in in 2020 needs to talk about and and I guess so that's why I started talking about the democracy which Christina Hogue got me into that with Venezuela and and I'm sure some of you have heard the new podcast I just put up about the Venezuelan citizen talking about the post coup experience, but I I felt like, you know, the more I thought about it, I felt like there was a thing going on in America that, that we don't really talk about a lot, and it's kind of the blowback of American history, and, you know, I guess in a sense, we're all sort of prisoners of our history, or we're sleepwalking through it, or, or I guess whatever sort of analogy you want to use, and I met Stan Prager, who you're about to hear, uh, through Steve Campbell. And Stan Prager is a basically a book blogger and a computer services person who is also an independent public historian. And we talk about the Lost Cause narrative and how a little bit about how the Lost Cause narrative fits into modern uh, American conservatism. Although, you know, it's mainly, at least I think, mainly more about the historization of um, the Lost Cause narrative and essentially what it is and all that. But, you know, especially living in the South, in the Piedmont region in the South, which is where Atlanta, Georgia is, you you don't see it as much, and we talk about that, but maybe you do, but you're not aware of it. It's kind of the salt in the water for the fish. You know what I'm saying? And anyway, um, yeah, so I guess this is my talk with Stan Prager. And I do kind of eventually want to hit on aspects of the Enlightenment and and maybe even talk about a little bit about why in the world I think the Enlightenment isn't exactly, it's not that it's not important anymore, it is, but it certainly doesn't hold sway in in our public discourse, in our political discourse, or even in our political theory or political thought, um, really at all. And also, I really feel like I need to talk to people about democracy. I want to have conversations with people, and not just people like Steve and people like Stan, um, but, you know, people, regular people living in the world who want to talk to me about democracy. Um, I'm you know, click on my email that I leave in the description and I'll set something up either 
online through Zencaster or over the telephone like I did with Steve or Stan today. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this talk. And it's a controversial talk. It's, you know, there's no cursing. And he told me he deliberately wanted to keep it as clean as possible. They're coloring the lines, I think, is what he said. To, to make it accessible to, you know, anybody commuting to work with kids or, or whatever. Um, but I did actually, after I recorded it, told him, you know, I recorded... I record Not Safe for Work podcasts all the time. and If you want to be Not Safe for Work, uh, uh, please be Not Safe for Work. But anyway, uh, so this is my podcast I did with Stan Prager. And it was fascinating. And if you're listening to this and you're approaching the History Voyager for the first time, uh, please go down and, and listen to... Uh, the Venezuela podcast. I, I, I really encourage all of you to please, please listen to the Venezuela podcast. That's a, a humanitarian crisis uh, going on. And I think the more people know about it, no matter what your American political beliefs are, because most of my listeners are American, but no matter what your American political philosophy is or political beliefs are or whatever, that's a humanitarian crisis. And, you know, I'm not in the nation building per se, per se, but I, I do think, you know, that's a humanitarian crisis and we need to raise awareness for that. Um, anyway, so without further ado, Mr. Stan Prager. This call is now being recorded. Hello, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, and this is episode 73, and I'm here with Stan Prager, and could you please tell the, the good people why I wanted to talk to you? Well, um, I uh, am an independent public historian. It's not all I do. I also own a computer services business, um, but I am a public historian, and I uh, have a book blog, and I have a book blog podcast, and uh, I talk about history a lot. And I talk about the Civil War a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the topics that we discussed that we might want to chat about is the lost cause mythology of the uh, Civil War. And that's uh, that's why we're here today. And I would love to hear about that. So why don't we pretend that we're talking to really smart people who are really smart people listening to us who might, who, who've heard of the American Civil War but might not know enough about it to know. I mean, everybody kind of knows the North one, I, I suppose, right? I, I think we can go out on that limb. But how I'm, did it... I'm not sure if everyone believes that, but um, but yeah, I I I, I guess <laughs> if you want to look at at for you from an encyclopedia point of view, yes, the North did win the war. Uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today may convince you that the South actually won the war, even though they lost it on the battlefield. And that's what the lost cause myth is all about. Okay, get out of town, as the kids say, or some of the kids say. (laughs) Okay, so, I I mean, we recently celebrated the sesquicentennial of the American Civil War, which was certainly a pivotal moment in our history. I think we can all agree on that. Um, But the war has been remembered very differently over time, and uh, um, un- until recently, 
uh, a, a lot of the memories in both the North and the South have coincided, and a lot of that's been, been really fictional. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if, the, if, if millennials have seen the movie, but I know people of my generation and people of, uh, you know, a couple generations before mine uh, have watched the movie Blown at the Wind. Hello? And, hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you cut out, you said millennials, couple generations, all right. Yeah. So, uh, sorry. So, uh, m- millennials basically may not have seen the movie, but I think everybody raised in my generation, generations before that, have seen the movie Gone with the Wind. And okay. it, if you want to understand what the lost cosmosology is all about, all you have to do is watch Gone with the Wind. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a title card in the beginning of Gone with the Wind where it says, you know, that there's a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South, and uh, gallantry took its last bow, and, you know, it looks for in books only, Gone with the Wind. It's a, this wonderful civilization that's been lost, and it was great and wonderful, and it was destroyed in the Civil War. Um, and, and, and this is a widespread belief in the South, essentially, um, that, you know, that, that there was an aggressive war. In, in fact, in many places in the South, it's, it's not called the Civil War. As you probably know, it's called the, the War of Northern Aggression. Um, that's, Actually, that's, if I can interrupt, you brought, yeah. up a, you brought up a memory. Uh, I live in Atlanta, yeah. and I went to Savannah for about a year, and in Savannah... It, it's actually called the Wawa. It's hmm. not called the war. Yep. The Civil yep. War. It's yep. the Wawa. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. I. I. I and it's one of the interesting things about Gone with the Wind because I grew up with it. And by the way, as, a, as I'm from the north, I'm from I'm from Connecticut. I live in Massachusetts right now. But when I was a boy, I used to pretend that I was a, a, a Confederate captain in the Civil War. I mean, there was a real romantic attraction to being part of the Confederacy. It seemed like they were really the good guys growing up. Um, and that's also part of this whole mythology. Uh, but one of, the, one of the bells that'll ring if you watch the movie today is you've got one of the enslaved people uh, named Prissy, and she's screaming, you know, frightened to death, the Yankees is coming, the Yankees is coming. Now, it's certainly possible that those kinds of things happen on plantations in the South, but the vast majority of African Americans, the Yankees were coming, were celebrating. They were not afraid. And a half a million of them fled the northern line. Um, you know, that's the reality of it. But anyway, flipping back to the, the lost cause, it, it, for those people who don't know, what the myth of the lost cause is, it's a fictional narrative created by ex-Confederates after the Civil War to distort and sanitize what the war was actually about. And, and that myth not only echoes down to the present day, but it's a key component of today's politics in the South, especially with regard to, to, to race relations. Okay. Very much so. Um, now, I yeah. don't mean to interrupt, and I'm yeah. sorry. No. Believe me. But we need to do a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of historical housekeeping here, because uh, and nobody is more shocked about this than me. But yeah. I have listeners all over the planet. Yeah. So let's... Okay, so the Confederates were essentially the the South, uh, yep. the Southern United States, and the yep. uh, Union or the uh, what did the Union Army call itself? The Union or the American? What did they call themselves? Well, it was called the Union Army. So, for those who don't know about the Civil War, essentially, in a nutshell, uh, the United States uh, fought a war with Mexico in the 1840s, and a third of what's the United States today was taken from Mexico in the course of that war. Um, and then after the war, there was this 
competition between what to do with these new territories. And the southern part of the country, which had slave, which was primarily had, was, had slave agriculture, elite plantations for the most part. Only a small slice of people actually lived that way. Most people, most white people in the South didn't have slaves and were dirt poor, but there was a small elite aristocratic slice of the country in the South that had many slaves on, on plantations. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to transplant that kind of lifestyle to these new territories that we had taken from Mexico. In the North, on the other hand, where, by the way, were just as racist, they could care less about African Americans, but they didn't want to see that kind of thing happen in the new territories. In the North, they wanted what was called the free soil people. They wanted to bring actual free labor to these new territories and make them like northern industrial states. So it was this kind of, you know, push and pull between the South and the North of what to do with these territories. Um, and it was all based on, on slavery. It was all based on the fact that the South wanted to transplant slavery to these territories. And basically, when Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860 in the New Republican Party, their party platform was that these new territories would become slave-free, that they would be free labor territories. And based on that, the South seceded, left the Union. That was the basis of the Civil War. The, the North refused to accept this secession. Lincoln and the, the, the United States at that point decided that they were going to take this territory back, and that was the cause of the Civil War. So for those people living in Bosnia or yeah, Canada um, so may, not, may, may not have paid attention to what went on in American history. That, in a nutshell, was what the war was about. And I think a lot, you know, most people kind of know a thumbnail sketch of that. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. So I, did, I didn't mean no. to. No, that's not <laughs> okay. at all. No, but I think it's important for those people who don't know. The rest of it doesn't make any sense if you don't right. know. And, of course, in one podcast, there's no possible way that we can competently cover what the Civil War was about and its aftermath and how it echoes down to today. So, obviously, we're going to have to do kind of a Reader's Digest version of some of this stuff. But I think you're absolutely right, Ben. It's important that the the critical elements are known to all the listeners and what we're yeah. talking about. So, right. But, but, the, but, but the, the story that I just told you, if you talk to people from the South, many people from the South, and if you look at textbooks from the South, even today, many of them don't reflect that story at all. Um, right. And this was because in the, it, after Appomattox, which was the, for those who don't know, that was kind of the decisive final, the surrender of Lee to Grant, and the, the war would be over very soon, um, the, the, the South had a terrible problem because the war was lost. And clearly, slavery was going to go extinct. It was gone. And the, the question was, is you know, how could these, these states, which obviously were going to become part of the United States again, how could this sacrifice of so many lives for an institution now deemed abhorrent by most Americans be justified? So what you had is you had former prominent Confederate political and military elite began devising an alternate history. And this alternate history said that the war was, was about states' rights, it was about tariffs. It was about agriculture versus industrialism. It was about the rural versus urban. It was about localism versus centralism, a host of other issues. And by the way, all these things played a role. But the, the scholarly consensus is that the war never could have occurred without slavery. And slavery was the central element of it. But if you, but the lost cause mythology basically doesn't have that. The, 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 the lost cause of mythology says that the war was about everything except slavery. And, and what's the result of this? The result is that African Americans are erased from the equation. 
they're gone. They're not part of it. The war wasn't about slavery. You know, yeah, they had slaves, but it wasn't a big deal. They were all benevolent. They were all treated well, and so what? Uh, no big deal. It was about these other things. That the North was aggressive. It, it invaded the South. You know, that's that's the story. Yeah. So, but if you if you erase African Americans from the story, what's left? Well, what you've right. got is white grievance. You've got white grievance and a narrative of the South abused by an aggressive North. Right. Um, and this is where the war for Northern aggression comes from. Now, you might ask, well, who cares? I mean, what does this really have to do today with today? Okay, why is it important today? Well, one of the ways you'll know it's important is, is, is I think that everyone is aware there's this incredible controversy over Confederate monuments, you know, um, mm -hmm. which yes, sir. when I was growing up, it was not controversial at all. And I'm from the north. Nobody ever said, well, why do we have, why do we have these, these giant monoliths throughout the south of, you know, if it was a, a civil war, it was a rebellion, and, and the north won, then why are these monuments? Well, why do you have, like, monuments of Lee in places in, in the south that, that weren't even, didn't even see combat in the war? Um, right. And so you start to ask questions about that. You're like, where did they come from? Like, why are they there? And, uh, and, and one of the things you learn was that, um, uh, these monuments were not built right after the Civil War. Many of them were built decades later, and they had nothing to do with the Civil War. They were, they were built primarily to celebrate what was called redemption. Now, redemption was where after the war, for a while, we had what's called Reconstruction, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where, you know, yes. it was controlled by the Northern Congress. Um, and, um, and, and the big issue here was uh, that there were new laws written. There was a couple of constitutional amendments, basically, that, that offered equality to African Americans. And, uh, and this did not sit well in the South. And you had, um, you had Abraham Lincoln, who was the president, who was assassinated a week after Appomattox. And you had a new president who was a Southerner, who was, you know, the only Southern senator who remained loyal to the United States, Andrew Johnson. He'd been added to the ticket. Um, to try to bring unity in 1864 in that election, he's now the new president. He despised African Americans. He also despised Southern elites, but he despised African Americans much more than he despised Southern elites. And he, he made it his business, more or less, to, to protect the, the rights of ex-Confederates over African Americans. And gradually, these ex-Confederates took back these, their states, and they almost immediately were sent to Congress. So you had Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. He was a congressman very shortly thereafter. It was as if the war had never happened. It was, and all of a sudden you had African Americans who were, had some equality, uh, at least an emerging equality during Reconstruction. They were terrorized. They were shot. They were murdered. Um, they were, they were <laughs> set in fear of their lives. Um, and, and you had what's called redemption. This is where these Southerners, these ex-Confederates, took these states back, replaced them with, many, in many cases, the people running the states were, were people who were in rebellion to the country before that, um, and Africans and African Americans were erased. Um, and, and so this memory is the memory that many people, in, in, in and you see this is now a creature of right-wing politics again, this is the memory that many people have of what the Civil War is really about, what the aftermath of the war is it about. And there's this tremendous grievance that, well, so why, do, why, are, why are black people coming around demanding things? Like, well, you know, why, why, why are we as white people made to feel like we owe them for these things? They just want handouts. They want special treatment. 
when in fact, um, you, you know, you had black people had no civil rights for a hundred years after the Civil War in the South. So that's right. what the lost cause myth is about. Yeah. Um. um <clears throat> I'm sorry. No, I didn't mean please. to interrupt. No, no, please um, do because because uh, we can go a lot of different directions with this. As I said, in the course of one podcast, we can't cover the whole topic. So yeah, no. wherever you want to go. <laughs> I really don't. Okay. So, so I live Atlanta. And yep. you, you might be aware. Uh, yep. You might have heard it right there. Is I'm a longtime native. I say Atlanta yep. like an like an 85 year old. Yep. <laughs> because we we don't say our T's in words. We don't say the letter T inside a word down here. If you're from yep. here. Uh, yep. So, um, we're Northwest Georgia meets. Essentially, this place started out as a mountain town and yep. in the Piedmont and kind of the Piedmont mountainish area. And you still kind of get, like, you still kind of get the, the Appalachian culture. Like, I would say up in the northwest suburbs, basically. Um, but my mother's people are mountain people. They're, they're Appalachian mountain folk. Yeah. And they have, there are family stories in her side of the family that, that run kind of counter to what, you would hear nowadays, basically. Yeah. Um, like they they would dress the. I don't want to ascribe different great aunts and what great great aunts and whatnot it to or great 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 aunts and whatnot to to doing this. But the story goes that various females would would dress various boys up in girls' clothes so that they wouldn't be dragooned into the into the Confederacy. Um, yeah. and this work a historical basis for that, by the way. That's, yeah, right. That's a, those are well-known stories. I didn't know, you know, in your particular area, but that's a well-known story. No, it is. I mean, it's a well-known story in my mother's family, but it's 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 always interesting to me how you can be of an age, and largely these people are dead, but you can be of an age, and you could be familiar as, as heck with that story, but you can be my age and and younger. And a little bit older than me, and no, no, my family proudly fought for the uh, the Confederacy, and you're like, okay, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe not. That's, that's, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's it's a true fact. I mean, a lot of people don't realize today that there was uh, every every Southern state that seceded, except South Carolina, sent at least one battalion to the North to fight for the North. Um, the, the, the Confederacy was very unpopular in many, many parts of it, and you had this, especially you know, in uh, in Western Maryland, uh, in Eastern Tennessee, you had you had a lot of, uh, um, and, and of course, West Virginia is a perfect example. That was part of Virginia. That seceded from Virginia because they wanted nothing to do with it. But you know, again, the the way the war is remembered after the war in the South often is not the way it was remembered by the people who actually fought, both North and South, at the time. And that's all part of this. And, you know, a lot of this occurred, this whole lost cause thing, it occurred as part of the reconciliation between the North and the South after the war. And so, you know, so much blood has been shed. You know, we don't know exactly how many people died in the war. Somewhere between 630 and 700,000 people, which is an amazing amount of people who died. Now, only a third of those died in, in actual combat. Two-thirds of them died of disease. But, but still, that's, a, yeah. that's an enormous, enormous amount of loss of life. That's an enormous, 
And how many people, um, let's, let's be, okay, let's get broaden this out. How many people thereabouts were living in, uh, what, what we today would consider the United States? You know, it's, uh, it's hard to, to, to pull out an exact number out of my head. Um, okay. But, but I, but I mean, it was obviously much smaller than, uh, than it is today. Um, yeah. you know, you had probably maybe somewhere between 30 and 35 million people. Something like that. So, so you yeah. know, it was not a yeah. it was not a tremendous tremendous amount of, of, of people considering you know you know the kind of, well right now we we've got yeah. something like three hundred and fifty billion. So you know, but right. but it, yeah. but it, but it, but it was still an it was an enormous loss of life. I mean, um, if you on both sides, yeah, if you take a million people out of thirty, if you take the best part of a million people out of yeah. thirty million, I mean that's that's yeah. a chunk. I mean that's a a sizable bite. So to say, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it really was, and and not only that, of course, you had uh, most of the South was devastated in the war, you know, especially in the Eastern Seaboard. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, I mean, talk about that for a second, because I mean, I've got stories in my own on both sides of my family. I've got stories about yeah. you know, so and so graduated with honor, graduated with honors from high school, but but thus and such, the child didn't even finish the fourth grade or something. I mean, yeah. could you talk could you talk about that with the schools being devastated and, and all that? Well, you know, you also you had um I mean, one of the part of this whole white grievance today is a lot of this is blamed on on, you know, how the south was treated in the during the war and after the war, but the fact is is that people did not live very well in the south before the civil war. Only this elite slice plantation elite lived well. And they they were very successful in promulgating this notion that the North was the enemy and that they wanted to take the people's rights away. Most white people in the South had no, uh, had no education. You know, they, they, unlike, and you can see it, by the way, when you read the letters, you know, I've done a lot of transcribing of letters in the Civil War. And, yeah. and most people, most people from New England, for instance, they, they, they wrote like Ralph Waldo Emerson and they were farm boards because there was a huge emphasis on education. But in the South, you had a lot of very, very dirt poor people. And you could tell in the letters, I mean, the spelling is phonetic. Um, you know, people can read and write, but very, very barely. The educational levels were significantly smaller. Um, again, there was a huge success that these plantation people, this, you know, 1% of the population was able to convince other people that, and of course, you see this in other wars as well. You know, this isn't right. Like, yeah. You see, I mean, you, you know, obviously, you know, in World War II, you didn't have most people in Germany or Japan who on their own came up with the notion that, you know, they should, you know, uh, foment this huge conflict and, and that millions of people should die from it, right? You had, you, you know, it's obviously the, 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 the elite, but it's interesting how the population can buy into it. The one thing that was, that was true in the South, and this is still true to some degree today, in many ways, especially in parts of the South where, you know, there's less equality, is that what gave a white man identification in the in the antebellum South was that he wasn't black because only black people could be owned. Um, and uh, right. and, and sl slavery in the United States, the Atlantic slave trade, is completely different than slavery in elsewhere in the world. You know, you had when, when the, when the uh, European uh, – Ships first went to Africa and began bringing slaves back. Slavery had existed there for thousands of years and in the Middle East. But it was a different kind of slavery. You could be a slave and your kids weren't necessarily slaves. And slavery Would you mind? Yeah. I'm sorry. 
No, go ahead. I, I know the tree you're barking up, so to say, because I studied yeah. about it in Savannah, but yeah. I don't want to talk about it. I want you to talk about that. I don't want to talk. Yeah. I'm lazy. I mean, I'm not yeah. lazy. I don't want them to. Yeah. Would you mind talking about some of the mechanics of owning another human being, of you owning another sentient human being? Like, what would yeah. be some of the mechanics in that? So slavery varied depending on where it was. Um, and, uh, you know, people like, you know, today there's a, uh, um, a, again, part of this whole myth is that, you know, slavery was, was benevolent. You know, you'll, you'll even hear some people argue that, you know, they had the, I had a, a guy say this to me once with a straight face at a Civil War event that, you know, they had the first form of social security there on the plantations because when the, the old, the old, the black people were old enough, too old, they couldn't work. You know, they fed them and took care of them, you know, until they died, you know, so. Of course, most of them didn't live past 35 or 40 years old, but they, you know, they, they took care of them. But so the mechanics are this: you can do whatever you want. So when people say that, you know, you know, they, they, he treated his slave well, it sounds like an oxymoronic statement to make because if it's a slave, you're obviously not treating them well right there. But let's say you were a benevolent person and you did not abuse the people that you owned. You could if you wanted to. So. You know, most men in a plantation environment, right up to to, uh, to Thomas Jefferson and other esteemed people like that, they all had had female concubines, um, which is obviously is a is a form of rape because you have somebody who doesn't have the you know the ability to say no, right? Um, you could, if your slave ran away from you, you could um, you could not only beat them, but it was common to brand them on their face, like with a branding iron, yeah. like a cow. You could cut their ears off. You could do everything short of killing them. And if you did kill them, you could be fined for killing them. Um, but basically, black people in the, in the, in the antebellum era, they were, they were like, they were like cows. In fact, they valued them like cows. If you look at cuts of beef, they had, uh, scales of that. There's a great book called, uh, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh by Dana Ramey Berry. It's a great book, um, where she talks about this. She actually, resurrects these these records they had and how they how they rated people and what their value was depending on their age their ability for women whether they could you know breed have children of uh, whatever but basically you could do whatever you want the, the the law didn't cover too much and even where there were laws to kind of protect you from being too abusive they weren't enforced yeah um so we have a sanitized memory of this one um, of the things yeah i'm sorry you're no. you're you're causing flashbacks and to, to go in my way back machine studying some of this because uh, where I became I guess acquainted in an academic and even more a social setting was in Savannah at, in college but uh, I remember reading some of the like the runaway slave ads yeah. and it was really striking how like the owner might not know the person's name you know, they, the, of the runaway slave, which they yep. said was valuable. They might not know the run of the person's name or even just physical characteristics, you know, or, you know, or what was, um, there was some even, there, you could get this inescapable idea that there was a healthy chunk of this planner class that literally did not, like they, and maybe some of it was they were, you know, lived in the north or they lived away from the plantation per se, but they didn't even really know where their plantation was. 
I mean, they did, but they didn't know about the lay of the land, so to say. Well, they were, you yeah, know? they were detached from the individuals. I mean, you know, most, um, you, you had your, you, you had your enslaved people that worked in, in the, in the homes, and which was yeah. a cushier kind of job to have. If you were a slave, I guess that would be a better choice for you. Or, you know, you had the ones who, the enslaved people that worked in the fields. Now, the, those enslaved people who worked in the fields, there's very few people in the, in the immediate family of the, of the plantation house who would know who these people were. Because you wouldn't really ever see them, you know, and then you'd hire an overseer. This was the other thing. It was, you know, the, if, if, if somebody disobeyed, um, if they didn't work hard enough, they did whatever, they'd be punished, in many cases beaten. Um, you know, the people who owned the plantation didn't do this beating. They didn't get their hands dirty, except for unless you were wanting to be very sadistic. You hired a guy, and he did it for you. And so, so long as, you know, they didn't beat them to death, and they did their job, and, you know, we made money this year, then everything was okay. But again, you can't generalize too much because it really varied. The point was is you could do whatever you want. So it wasn't what you actually did. You know, again, there were, you know, people will talk about, well, he, he took, he was very kind to his slaves, you know, but, but, but the point is, is that your, your, your slaves are property. They're, they're, they're basically pieces of meat. Or as, um, um, David Christen, the, the historian who, who's big on big history, um, a very well noted guy, he describes slaves throughout history as human batteries, which is an interesting construct. So if you can imagine today, we look at technology, you know, we put a battery in it and it makes it work. Well, they didn't have, batteries so you had people and people did that work um but what made it different here and i I alluded to this earlier it made it different in the united states than it was in africa or it was in the middle east or in asia was that you could only be a slave if you were black you couldn't you know and that's it and that's the reason why today we, we still suffer from this because being black became associated with with being less than human not being fully equal. You don't have that anywhere else in the world because in Africa they had black slaves and they also had Middle Eastern slaves. And in the Middle East they had slaves who were white and black and were, you know, if you had a, if you, you conquered some area and you took over that town, you took those people's slaves. That was the way it was all the way back in history. And their kids, and they might not be a slave their whole life. Here slavery was permanent. Unless you were freed, yeah. It was permanent, and your children became slaves. And by the way, they had to change the law in the United States early on, before it was the United States, when it was a colony. Because in, in English common law, typically, you know, everything relates to the, uh, um, to, to the father, right? So right. the father's condition is, yes. gonna, is going to affect the child, right? But they had to change that here because, of course, you had white masters who commonly slept with, 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 with black slaves, with females, and they had children. Those children did not inherit their father's freedom. They inherited their mother's servitude. Servitude, right. Yeah, yeah. their state of servitude. So that stayed with them forever. Um, now, what's interesting about this also, um, without chasing down too many rabbit holes here, is, is that if you read the founding generation, you know, you read Jefferson and Madison, mm-hmm. Patrick Henry and people like this, they thought slavery was a great evil. Washington, good example. All these men owned slaves, but they thought it was a terrible evil. And they couldn't figure out how to get rid of it, or they were too lazy to deal with getting rid of it. Jefferson's famous line was, it's like holding a wolf by the ear. You don't like it, but you don't dare let it go, you know. So that's that's kind of a lazy way of dealing with the problem, right? So, um, But then after the founding generation, as slaves became more integral to the southern economy, you had to have a justification for it. So then it became, well, God said it's good. This is the condition black people should be in. 
and there's a right. position in life, and this is their position, and this is how it should be, should be. So you have, and you began to have laws that black people couldn't learn how to read. This didn't exist before. You, you began to have laws that black people could not participate in court. Uh, they just became property. Um, one of the most interesting stories here, I think, which is really chilling, is that, do you have any idea what happened if a, if a, if a, a black slave killed somebody else in the South? Uh, no. Why don't you tell me? Okay. So they'd be tried in a court of law, but no other blacks could testify. Only white people could testify. So if a black person saw something, their testimony didn't mean anything. Um, and if they were found guilty and sentenced to death, the state then would reimburse the master, the owner of that slave, for what they were worth, what their value was. So in, yeah. in a way, it put a break on the number of people who were sentenced to death who were black. Because the state had to go ahead and pay for them, which is the reason if you if you read about the Nat Turner Rebellion, a lot of the, the people involved in the rebellion were not sentenced to death because that would have cost the state a tremendous amount of money. So they found ways to, you know, exile and imprison them, whatever. But um but right. you just you basically were just a piece of meat. And you were you were you were a human battery that was a piece of meat and you had a value to you. And your value was depending on how old you were, or how young you were, or what your workability was, or whether you could have children, that value Change and, by and the whether way, whether or not you were a um, a shipwright or whatever, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some were trained artisans. Yeah. And by the way, um, you know, we often talk about you know the North is certainly not innocent of this because, by the way, it's the insurance companies in Hartford, Connecticut that insured yeah. all these slaves. Like, if you were a master, you took out insurance on all these these this property you had. So Wall Street, yeah, was yeah. literally yeah. built. Both literally and figuratively, it was built by slaves. Right. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely, you know, there's no, and, and often if you have this conversation, you'll have people in, in the South who, who promulgate this lost cause myth who get very angry and say, well, what about the North? What about this? Well, there's enough sin to go around. I mean, the whole country, yeah. you know, has 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 blood, blood on their hands for this. But the, but the point is, is that it's important to remember, you know, what really happened. You know, why this happened and, uh, um, and, and what happened afterwards. And why yeah. do we remember it the way we remember it? And that's really where the lost cause is so incredibly dangerous because it basically just, as I said, it just expunges African Americans from the record. They just didn't exist at all. Whoa. And so when you hear about politicians issuing dog whistles to crowds of, of white people in the South um, about race relations, there's this tremendous sense of grievance in the South that they have been punished for something that they, they didn't deserve to be punished for, that they have no responsibility for African Americans. There's nothing to do with African Americans. The war had nothing to do with it. The aftermath of it had nothing to do with it. And so you, you have this identification today with things like, um, for instance, you know the famous uh, Stars and Bars in the, in the Capitol in South Carolina that was taken uh, down a few years ago? Yes, sir. You're, you're familiar yes, sir. with that, right? Well, most yes, people think that that's been up there forever. But actually, that went up there in 1962 to protest civil rights. Um, you know, so these right. things, these these symbols, like the Confederate monuments, they really didn't have a whole lot to do with the Civil War itself. The way, like, Civil War people like me studied the Civil War, they had everything to do with after the war and the condition of African Americans once these states were what they called redeemed by the ex-Confederates. So that's, that's, that's what's fascinating to me. Talk about, um, okay. This is a whole lot to 
for the, the folks to take in. But could you talk a minute about, um, so if we're talking about the lost cause narrative, uh, we're talking about uh, the 1870s, 60s, 80s, 1890s. Everything since then, yep, began right after the war. Began uh, so, in the 1860s. Okay. Uh, would you say, okay, um, because essentially I, I've lived most of my life in metropolitan Atlanta. Yeah. And I, I can, I can go around here and, and live a perfectly normal, happy life. And I don't have to hear the, I mean, the lost cause narrative at all. Unless. I cut on the radio unless I like look for it. Unless I go to the courthouse, unless I look at, you know, the plaques or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like I would argue most people sort of in the zip code of my age going down, if you're especially if you're white or, you know, not African American. I would argue that most people living in the suburbs in Atlanta don't really know about the lost cause narrative at all. Well, I think it's because it's, it's, you're right, because nobody would, the words themselves don't mean anything because it's so deeply woven into the, into the, uh, the the fabric of the, of the country. It's so, so much part of the DNA. So people only really, it only comes up really, so if you have this controversy over the stars and bars, you have this controversy over the, uh, uh, you know, Confederate monuments, or you have this controversy over, you know, voter ID laws that happen to work against minorities, what have you. So this is where the where the conversation comes up. Nobody really generally, except in civil war groups, is going to come out and, and you know, use the word lost cause or talk about it because, right. again, it just becomes part of your whole experience. It's like, you know, it's like well, when you grow up, the part of American history that you learned in school, whether north or south, you know, you, uh, you, know, you don't really think about that, what that means and what that manifests unless something – you encounter something in life that have a problem with it. I have two friends that I made in my master's program when I got my master's in history uh, who are from the South, one from Texas and one from Virginia. And they both privately told me on separate occasions how astonished they were when they began studying the war in a master's program to learn how misled they were by the, the textbooks they, they, that they, they studied growing up in the South. That the whole story of the war and the whole story of the aftermath and the whole story of civil rights, just everything that they'd ever heard was wrong. And they were just absolutely shocked by it. And, and yeah. they both said they, they felt like they'd had a, a literal come-to-Jesus moment where they're like, uh. how is it possible that I'm – and these guys are in their 50s. And, they, you know, they're, they're right. adult learners getting their master's degrees. They're like, how is it possible I've lived a half a century and, I, you know, I had no idea that this is what really happened. You know, well, how is it that I had no idea that, you know, that, that this monument to Lee went up 30 years after the war and was uh, and was put there to, to, to celebrate the fact that, that you know, uh, whites were were back in control of this state uh, and that black people couldn't vote. Why, why would I know that, you know? If right. you look at the Lee thing, you think it's a Civil War monument, right? right. You think, I mean, why the hell else would you have a statue of Lee? So this, was, this, is, this is earth-shattering. For many people, when they go to school and they study it, um, so yeah, you wouldn't notice it in conversation with people until you have a conversation about something that becomes controversial today as a result of it. But right. by the way, 
when people will tell you that, you know, the war is about states' rights and everything to do with slavery and what have you, Gary Gallagher, who's one of the, the leading Civil War historians in the country today, he teaches at uh, University of Virginia, he said, you want to know what the war was about? He's like, read about what they said it was about at the time. Because different books were written after the war than were written before the war, right? One, so One of the things I remember, I, I literally remember this, and you're right, yeah, I'm remembering, I mean, I'm, some of this I've never forgotten. It's just astonishing. Yeah. There's right. actually a town. I don't rightly remember the name of the city right now. Yeah. But there's a city uh, in my county, actually, that was literally founded as a factory town. And the the whole thrust of it was, well, we're going to use this factory. We're going to staff it with slaves. And we're going to make things because we want to show that slavery can exist in the I guess, in the Industrial Revolution. Yep. And the thing yep. about it that I remember was as much as one, any one other thing, because there were lots of little one things, but as much as yep. any one other thing, yep. um, the foundation of this town and the, the fact that the, the, the factory situation kind of took off in that yep. town, uh, people in the north were like, what? No, what do you? No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, um, the thing is, I mean, you, there, there were many slaves that, that worked in uh, in industrial environments in Richmond, for instance, but there were only a couple of places in the South. Atlanta, it's interesting you point that out because that's, that, that's really critical to it. Atlanta was one of the few places in the South that was also industrialized, um, and that's why when Atlanta fell, that was really, you know, that was the death knell for the war yeah. because that was really the end of where they could make anything. Um, and there's an... I don't mean to interrupt, no, but there, no, there's no. another interesting little factoid that's adjacent to what you're talking about. Uh, the people who ran the water authority in Atlanta for eons, uh, eons and eons, yeah. uh, was the family of a, uh, a officer, a union officer, um, came settled here in yeah. Atlanta. And yep. ran the water authority, and his kids yep. and his descendants essentially ran the water authority in Atlanta for eons after that. And it's really kind of funny when you look at um, public works maps. Yeah. Um, about some of the piping, um, not just racially, not just like whatever, but there was a whole network of piping. Or there was at least one major water main situation that wasn't on a map, on a city, you know, on an official map, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... And well, so I mean, part... what, what, a lot of people today don't even realize that in the, um, in the post-war South, we had, they actually had African Americans in Congress. There were black senators. There were black congressmen. The last one was 1895. There were no more after that. You, you never saw it again until, you know, the modern era. But... This this is how long it took for these states to go ahead and and you know basically overturn what the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment brought to bear. You know, yeah. it was the, the the acceptance was is the agreement was at the end of the war essentially is okay we'll accept the fact because you couldn't by the way you couldn't rejoin the union unless you agreed to abolish slavery. 
So the Thirteenth Amendment was, you know, abolish slavery. So you couldn't you couldn't rejoin the Union unless you agreed to that that there could never be slavery again. But then the other amendments were added. You know, the Fourteenth Amendment offered all these various rights and protections to 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 African Americans. Um, and in many places in the South, you, you, you had that a kind of an emerging equality. I mean, certainly there wasn't going to be a social equality. It would take generations for that to occur, but you were on a road to that. Um, and then once you had redemption, it was all over. You had, you know, see, that's why until the, the 1960s, you had people, black people throughout most of the South who, who couldn't vote or couldn't participate. Um, you know, you, you, you had a complete change. The other thing that was interesting about it is, you know, with, um, Plessy versus Ferguson with the uh, with segregation and what have you, it, it's so antithetical to the way that blacks and whites lived before the Civil War, because there was no segregation per se. They were slaves, but they were part of the daily fabric of of your life. So it right. wouldn't be a case of using a different place to, to a different cup to drink water or what have you. I mean, you know, slaves cleaned the house, slaves cooked dinner, slaves nursed the babies. You know, so uh, this whole separation notion. Um, that came right. in after the war was also a completely different thing. But, you know, what, what I'll leave you with with this, with, with this topic, which I think is the most important thing, is when somebody says that the war wasn't about slavery, that that's all bull and what have you, you know, send them back to read the documents that were written at the beginning of the, before the war. When you had people calling right. a, that were forming up, the, the Confederate States of America was called a proud slave republic. Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy and a major uh, architect of it, he said it was based upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. And there's ten direct references to slavery in the Confederate Constitution. I think that's in the preamble. I think that's literally in it, the preamble of it, the Confederate it, Constitution. It, 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 it may or may not be, or it may, it, it, or it may be in an associated document. But the point is, is that yeah. it, it had everything to do with slavery. Now, after the war, Alexander Stevens, that same Alexander Stevens, who now returns to Congress after the war, now representing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Georgia in, uh, um, in, in, in the United States Congress after being the vice president of the Confederacy in rebellion, he returns now as a congressman. And he writes this book. It's almost unreadable. It's hundreds of pages long, along with Jefferson Davis, who was the uh, president of the Confederacy. They write these books, and these books, they, slavery isn't mentioned at all. It's as if it didn't exist. Black people don't exist. They're just yeah. erased. They're just expunged from it. And this was the genesis of this whole lost cause thing. And the price for reconciliation with the North, essentially, both North and South, just came to forget about the whole point of what the war was caused by. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask you, b before you go, and this yeah, is slightly off topic, but not no, really. Yeah. Um, so I did a podcast about the Spanish flu. I did a whole yeah. deep dive series on the Spanish flu. Yep. And yeah. one of the things that um, I, you anybody who learns about the Spanish flu seriously has to bump into repeatedly is the, we'll call it racism, but I don't mean that in the classical sense, in the modern sense of the term, okay? Um, one of the things that the, I guess the medical professionals, not not even in America, just all over, right? Um, a lot of them didn't think that people, like if I was a, a Polish person, right? Yeah. I couldn't have, like I was a different biological entity from a Chinese person. That's right. correct. That's correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, the thing yeah. as somebody that lives 
in Atlanta, which has per capita one of the highest uh, groups of African Americans, I think, in the country, you, you see all different shades of brown and black, right? And you, you yep. know people yep. that, I mean, you can't live here and, and be of an age and go out where there's people and not see somebody, some African American family that doesn't have maybe run the spectrum of skin color of from course. all from light. Oh, but okay, so the thing that would would I would just look at as I'm studying about the Spanish flu would be like this whole thing about how you think that a Chinese person is different from a a different biological entity from say an English person, right? Right. Um, obviously, the 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 Southerners at least some of them, right, knew that wasn't true, okay? Because you know that you – I mean, how else does one get white-skinned African-Americans, for example? Right. Primarily, right. primarily because men, white men had sex with a lot of African-American okay. women who were slaves. All right. And, so that's, he, and that's where those kids came from. And yeah, exactly. Like you're going to have you're going to have a very very small number of African Americans in the United States who've been here for a couple hundred years that are are that have just pure African blood for that All reason right. because you've had a lot of you know and that and, and you're right it's 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 so contradictory in, in in so many ways that this would make a big difference. Although they measured it back then, you could be you could be an octoroon, which was one eighth black, and you were yeah. still you could still be a slave. All right. So here was the question, and it sounds silly, but it's an actual yep. question that, that bumped into my head repeatedly. Yep. Repeatedly, yep. was could you be, uh, say, a, a high, or say what would pass in 1917 for a highly educated doctor? Okay, and we use that yep. term in quotes. Could yep. you be a highly educated doctor in 1917, and and honestly not think? That a black person and a white person were—I mean, could you believe that they were not the same species, or they were not? It was not possible for them to have a child. Essentially, is what I—I I kept having that thought but knocked they into my they, head. They, they actually—they did, um, and they had no problem with it because the way that they would thought of it was the fact that—I um, mean, they—they they literally looked at at even educated people looked at people very much like you would look at dogs. So you could have any dog could could have breed with another dog. In fact, a dog can breed with a wolf or a coyote. So right. that was the that was the mindset at the time. I mean, you know, there was they were in the early nineteen hundreds, if you read what Woodrow Wilson wrote about the horror of people coming from Italy and Hungary and Poland, like these low you know, ethnically like inferior people coming here and poisoning our, our country with their presence. This is Woodrow Wilson who becomes president. So it isn't even just black people. I mean, like you said, it's, there, there's a belief that there are, that people are, are, are ranked on, a, on, a, on an elite basis based on how white they are and whether they come from northern Europe or they come from southern Europe. It's so ironic for us today mm-hmm. because, you know, now we know that really, um, especially with, with African Americans, for instance, um, you know, or, or Asians or, or what have you, is that it's just melanin. It really means nothing. And probably this whole white skin color is probably only thirty or 40,000 years old to begin with. That uh, We all know there's only one species, right? There's just homo sapiens. Right. And, and they all came out of Africa. So everyone at one point would have been black. 
and then would lose that melanin depending on where they lived and what climate and what have you, you know, and things changed over the many years. And they're thinking today, maybe 30, 40,000 years ago, was, were the first people with white skin color. So, you know, it's so ironic. It goes against what people want to believe. But even educated people today, I mean, I, I, I've known people my whole life who don't want to be racist, but the notion that their, their, their daughter, you know, or their son might be in a relationship with someone who's black is just horrific for them. They can't wrap right. their mind around it. They've been so, even though they're highly educated and they don't believe that they're racist, they cannot get away from that. That's so deeply ingrained. And again, a lot of this came then because of the fact that in order to justify slavery in the United States, they had to make it so that being black was determinant that you could be enslaved. You will, you know, if you ask people, I mean, I, I talked to somebody from Africa, and they said, you know, we don't have any racism in Africa. And the reason is, is because, um, you know, skin color had nothing to do with slavery. You know, there was slavery for thousands of years there, but it had nothing to do with this. this. And again, same thing with the Middle East. You had people, you know, the original slaves in the, in the, in the, um, in the Middle East were, uh, the Vikings stole the, the Rus, the Slavs. That's where the word slave right. came from. Yeah, yeah. And they sold them and, and, and sold them to, uh, um, to, to Muslim, uh, traders. And Muslims at that point could not enslave another Muslim. That was against Allah. So, yeah, you could only take a Christian. So, you, you know, and if you were a Christian slave, by the way, there was a way to be, to convert and then no longer become a slave. But that's how complex it was. But your color made no difference. You know, you could, nobody would ever say, well, you know, look, he's a, he's dark skinned or he's white skinned or he's black and so he's a slave. But in the United right. States, that became integral to what being a slave was. That's how it was defined. So right. the reason if you want the reason I wanted to talk about this and the reason why it's so important today is because this is just such falsehood that melanin would mean anything. But yeah, here we are in twenty twenty, living in the most advanced times in human history since two hundred thousand years ago, the the dawn of Homo sapiens. And this is still an issue here in the United States. Right. And here, here's what's, I mean, you talk about how hidden this history is, really. Um, I mean, for me, even to find out about that town in my own county, right? That yep. I've, you know, uh, I had to go to a whole nother place, which Savannah is essentially across one of the biggest states in the Union, right? I had to go to a whole nother place and sit in a master's program and just read and read and read for months before I learned that. I yeah. mean, yeah. And it's literally oh, yeah. a town that's like right over there. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Well, and, and you made a really good point before you said that I could, I could live my whole adult life and never hear the word the lost cause because again, it isn't, it, it isn't representative. It isn't like somebody would use that in a, in a sentence. Uh, yeah. A lot of this yeah. stuff, a lot of the things we suffer from, a lot of the maladies I call them, that we suffer from in America in 2020, regardless of your political persuasion or, you know, your ideology or your religion or whatever, is that there's so many things woven into the fabric of our life that we believe. Uh, completely off topic, but when I was a kid, I don't know if you, have, you remember in school learning about how we steamed into China to enforce the open door policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah we didn't do that. I never thought anything of it. Yeah, I never <laughs> thought anything of it. But I was, it, was, it was taught to me as if we should be proud that we did this, you know, that other countries mm-hmm. We're able to trade there. Why not us? It, it never, you know, I never thought about it till I got older that what we're celebrating here is the fact that we took a warship o- and we inserted ourselves into a Chinese port and said, told the Chinese, you know, sorry, dude, you got nothing to do with this. We do whatever we want. 
And by the way, so the English and French are already doing it. We have a right to do it. That's and what like it was so was woven. opium. It was, yes, it was opium. Exactly. It was, yep, opium was yeah. a big, big part yeah. of it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's, and that's what, a secondary thing. Yep. What's amazing to me is like, what's amazing to me, and it's sad, right? It's it's sad to me, really, is that you, you meet African Americans just around, and, and they think, you know, why would you learn about history? History is racist. And okay, sure. But, you know, history rhymes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. only recently that you're going to get real information out there, you know, and that's, that's another problem yeah. because, and, and people, they'll, 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 there's, in the United States, there's two things. There's a guy with a master's in history. This is, this is a critical thing I think everyone should know. If there's a thing in, 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 in history, there's two schools of thought. There's what we call history. And then there's what we call heritage. Now, heritage right. is that everything that we did was great. And then when you when you teach a story about, uh, you know, Native Americans being massacred by colonists or about slavery or about the open-door policy, whatever it is, then you're accused of what's called revisionism, right? And re- revisionism is, it sounds like a really dirty word, right? Political correctness, revisionism. But, but history is self-correcting. It's supposed to be revisionist. With the lost cause, the, that was the original revision. The fact is, the fact that we're talking about taking down stars and bars off capitals and removing Confederate monuments, there's really nothing revisionist about that. The revisionist was the fact that these went up to begin with, that you have, like, because you don't go to other countries, you don't see this, right? In other countries, when somebody loses a war, there aren't statues for those people, right? And, it, by the way, this, it never struck me more than when I was, uh, I visited a lot of Civil War battlefields. I don't know if you've done that, but I, I went to, I've been to a number of them, and I went to the one in Fredericksburg which is a great battlefield down there. And that's an area where there was a number of, of, of conflicts. You know, you're not too far from Wilderness and Spotsylvania and a number of other critical battles. But I'm driving down the road, and I'm driving down this road, and I look up, and, and, and it's the Jefferson Davis Boulevard. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, what would it be like if I was a black person and I lived on Jefferson Davis Boulevard? And this is a guy who his whole life was basically defined by the fact that he was the president of the Confederacy, which was a, uh, which essentially was a group of seceded states who seceded to form a slave republic. And how is this possible? And and if you look around the world, you don't you just don't see this anywhere else. You know, there's no there's no there's no Goebbels Boulevard in uh, in in Germany. You know what I mean? We we don't have statues of King George the Third. We took them all down after we won the revolution. Um, you don't see. There's no Tojo Square in in Japan. You, you don't. You don't. But, but yeah. it's, it's no, interesting. The right? point's you well made. Yeah, yeah, you don't think about it, right? And, right. And, and and if you say this to someone who's a lost cause proponent, they're deeply offended because they're like, "Well, you're 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 making comparisons between Hitler and but but that's not the point. The point is is that the war was lost by the South. And you know, I know people, good friends of mine, who have you know great grandfathers who fought in the Civil War on the Southern side. And, you know, they're like, I'm so mm-hmm. glad that they didn't win. They're proud of these guys that they were very heroic. And you can be proud. You know, I go to Civil War cemeteries. I, I Confederate cemeteries is where I weep more than anywhere else because you think about these these boys who didn't own slaves for the most part, and they were sent off there on this yeah. ridiculous war to try to, you know, celebrate and expand slavery, and they died. And they well, were they were just as heroic or not heroic as any other northern soldier, and they fought, and they, they had mothers and fathers and sisters and lovers and wives and children, and and and, and they're dead, you know. Yeah. So um, so you can celebrate. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the heroism 
of any soldier in any war, because most privates, they don't have a politics, right? No matter who they fought yeah. for. Most, most privates in any war, they just, they, they didn't have politics. They went You're to just war fighting there. for the, you're fighting for your, your buddy, you know, your, the guy right. next to you. Exactly. You know. Exactly. So you're, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, that's, that's the case, right? So, so by no means would I ever, as a Civil War guy, ever want to, you know, uh, deprecate or, uh, or, or, you know, diminish. Yeah. The sacrifice that was made by anybody on the north or the south on the battlefield for for whatever reason, but the war is over, yeah. and and it's it's a disservice to remember the war incorrectly, just like it's a disservice to remember anything in your life incorrectly. You got to You know, I'm a great believer, and you evolve as you grow and change in your life. There's things I did in my life that that you know I'm, I might be ashamed of, but I'm you know you grow and you look back and you're like I wouldn't do that today. I wouldn't be that kind of person today. That's that's evolving, and when you and a nation does the same thing. When you evolve as a nation, you, you say, you know what, this is part of our past that we we don't ever want to repeat. Because, like you said, history maybe not doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. We don't want to put ourselves in that situation ever again. And by acknowledging that, we're not being unpatriotic. We're not attacking the United States. We're not saying that we're a terrible country and that yeah. our leaders were terrible people. We're saying that. There were wrongs that were committed, and, and we can only make sure that we don't do that kind of thing again if we acknowledge what they are. Yeah. That, that's my take. Well, um, uh, thank you, sir. And uh, just hang on a second. Let me unhook the recording. Yep.